Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture this morning is Psalms 127. Psalms 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor in vain or they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he who for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, their fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are so so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Titus, the second chapter. This is a great day. May I just tell you how happy I am to see you here. And we have a large crowd. And as Paul was saying, we have a lot of visitors today, as is typical in this church. And we're very thankful for that. We're looking forward to our friends and family day. I want you to be planning for that. I, I talked to my friend in the post office. We have a little post office out close to where we live. And I said, now, I want you to come to West Huntsville now on the 15th of October because we're going to have friends and family day. And I want you to bring your husband with you. And so she promised me she would. And I think that they'll come. Now, you, you find people to come. What I want to talk about on that day is uh, actually Paul and I sat down this past week. I'd made a list, and I wanted his ideas about this. If you were coming into the assembly of the Lord's church for the first time as a visitor, what would you want to know? What things would you be wanting to know? I doubt that it would be deeply theological. I doubt that. I think it would be much simpler than that, much more elementary than that. We're going to talk about uh, that, and if you have ideas, by the way, that you think would be helpful, I'll be happy to hear those. And, and on that day, I'm going to make a list of things that I want people to know about the Church of Christ for the first time. And uh, they, they can tell that we're all good-looking. At the, at the, I, I don't have to say that. Or that we're friendly. I'm quite, quite confident that on that day, they'll already have known that this is a friendly church before I get up here to speak. So anyway, be planning for that. Invite your friends and family to come. And let's have a great, great day on October 15. The book of Titus is a fascinating book to me for its practicality. There have been times in my life when I have been involved in things and thought to myself, what we're doing right now is very much, has to be very much like it was in the first century in those early Christians. We're going to have such an experience this morning in this sermon because Titus is... is uh, being told by the Apostle Paul. Paul is the writer of this, this book. Titus is a young preacher. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 23 says that Titus is his fellow laborer. He's his co-worker in the gospel. And here's this young preacher, and Paul has taken him there. And first chapter says, I left you in Crete. I left you in Crete. See, Paul was there with him, that you may set in order the things that are lacking and ordain elders in every city. So here's, here's the Apostle Paul. He and Titus come to Crete, and, and Paul's going to leave him there. 
And, and then you have the book of Titus. It's, it's very short, really, three chapters. The first chapter is to say, now I want you to make elders in every congregation, in every city. You make elders. That's, that's right off the bat. And that's, I struggle with that because I know what Crete was like. We'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes, but I know what that was like. And uh, it was a rough place to preach. Sometimes young preachers will call and, and uh, talk to me about, you know, I'm thinking about moving and being the preacher for this congregation, and I want to know what you think because I've been there to visit, and, and Glenn, they've got these problems. What do you think? And, I, you know, I, I'll listen sympathetically. I know that you have to have a kind of a personality match there. You want it to work out. You want it to blend and all of that, but, but it's not uncommon for me to say you're not going there because they're perfect. That doesn't make sense. You're going there because you want to preach the gospel and help them to grow and to be, be stronger and be better and just set that as your goal. And I will often say, and let's make it a long-term goal. Don't jump in there in the first two weeks say, let me tell you what you got wrong and I'm going to fix it for you. What you're going to do is go and work with that church and grow them. That's, that's your job. That's what you should be about. Well, so the apostle Paul is saying to Titus, I'm going to leave you in Crete. And in the first chapter, he says, I want you to make elders. How do you do that? Now, look in your Bible right now at at Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, you see the description of the Cretans and, and they're, I mean, they're awful people. That's a, I mean, speaking in generalities, but very often in life, you're not going to get anything done if you cannot speak in generalities. And so he's, he's speaking in a broad sense, but here's how these people are. Now, how in the world are you going to draw from those people elders for the Lord's church? And Titus Paul gives Titus these specifics, the qualifications of elders, and I want you to make elders. This is right off the bat, first chapter. Well, there's some, there's some discussion about that. And some, I, I've heard some say, well, perhaps um, not all the Cretans were like this. And that there were some people who were basically good. And from those he chose, he trained and chose elders. Or some would say that, that maybe, maybe this was done miraculously. You know, it's an early church. They've got the miraculous. And perhaps what happened is that there was some miraculous thing that went on to make these men qualified. I'm always very skeptical about that. But I don't think that's it. Some would say, well... Well, Titus was there probably 30 years, and so this wasn't quickly done. This was done over time, and, and that's, that, that's logical. I think that makes sense. But this isn't going to be easy. Paul's leaving him in a very difficult, difficult circumstance. And I love this because in chapter 2, Paul is going to say, now here's what I want you to preach. That's when I, when I started the way I, that I did, I, because I, I'm, I'm going to preach some things this morning, and, and I know that it's got to be similar to what Titus taught all those years ago in Crete. I know what he taught because here's what Paul taught him to to teach. He taught him these things. You say these things. You preach these things. Get to chapter 3 and you got love for Jesus Christ who is our Savior and also teach these people when you get there a good solid work ethic. Teach them to be busy, to be busy about good things. Our lesson today is from chapter 2. Now, let's, let's, uh, I want to impress you with this first. The word sound. Sound. Our text today, Titus chapter 2, is rather enveloped in this concept of what is sound. The Greek word is the word from which we get our word hygiene. And, and literally, the, the, just the, the plain definition is, generically, is, is that it means sound and health. So if you're, if you're sound of body, you know what that means. But then, of course, it, it comes into a more figurative sense, and it, and it means anything that is dependable, that is solid, that is, that is faithful and true and good and sound. 
Now be impressed with that and walk, walk through a few verses because this is what Titus, Paul is saying to Titus over and over. Here's chapter 1 verse 9. The elders are to hold to sound doctrine, which is very impressive to me. Please be aware that there is such a thing as sound doctrine. Contrary, of course, to, I don't think that atheists are the greatest um, problem to the church today. I don't think that's true. I think it's religionists. I think it's professing Christians who don't believe there is any such thing as truth, not definitive, universal truth. This is describing sound doctrine. Is there such a thing? Or is denominationalism the right approach that says we have lots and lots and lots of different viewpoints and so we'll just divide and everybody's doing good. Everybody, no matter what they preach or practice or believe, everybody's just as pleasing to God. Well, that's not what this says. Sound doctrine means there's such a thing as doctrine that's dependable and that we can know it. Otherwise, this wouldn't make any sense. But I'm not going to stop there. Keep going. Look at chapter 1 now, verse 13. Here's something that you need to preach. Paul says, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, talking about the Cretans, that they may be sound in the faith. Think about what that means. You preach and teach to them so they're sound in doctrine. You preach and teach so they'll be sound in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 1, and this is going to begin our lesson for today. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 2, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith. Dropping down to verse 8, this is for the younger men, sound speech that cannot be condemned. So I just want to give you that sense that, that what we're walking into now is sound doctrine. And the beginning of our lesson is cha- chapter 2, verse 1. And when you think about sound doctrine, maybe you don't think about family. In this context, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. You've got to get the elders seated, seated. You've got to get, because they're going, to, they're going to be the glue that holds the church together. But then chapter 2, you've got to get the families right. Well, I hope that builds your anticipation. Because this is organic teaching. This is organic doctrine. This goes back to the pure, simple teaching of the New Testament. This is where Paul is when he writes to Titus and says, you go in Crete and here's what you teach about family. All right, chapter 1, I'm in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper or characteristic of sound doctrine. Now, the next few verses through verse 8 will give you four categories of people. And a number of you are keeping notes, so it's just going to be, there are going to be four points in this lesson and in this passage. And it's, it's writing and speaking to older men, older women, young women and young men. All right, so these four categories of people, and here are the specifics, Paul says, Titus, that I want you to preach about. You get these things straight when you preach. What do you think he taught? Well, I know what he taught because I have the list here. All right, here we go. Verse 2, that the older men be sober. Now, the interesting thing about sober is that when you look up the Greek word, the first definition is he abstains from wine. He abstains from wine. Now, that's really interesting. Good to have a reference to that for the older women, too. I want you to be sober. Now, from that, of course, you, you, you step to the larger, broader picture, which is that sober means seeing things as they really are. The anchor of a congregation like West Huntsville are her older people it's, and, and, and men. 
And the crying need for the world today is to have strong and faithful good men to be our leaders. And to the Lord's church, that's what you've got to have. Now, whether or not these men are elders or deacons or preachers or, or whatever, it's really kind of beside the point. What he says is you've got to raise up a group of men in that church who are sound in the faith. Sober. Sober means that they, they see things as they really are. When you talk about eternal things, you talk about heaven's deity, the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. You talk about the value of the church, talk about the value of the family. They've got that. They're reverent. Now, that's not reverend with a D. Psalm 111 says that holy and reverend is the name of God, but they're reverent. Now, now just appreciate that they understand what something is that's sacred, and they, they view it that way. Now, this is also something that's required of the older women. You teach the older women, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that they're to be reverent, be reverent. It's a disposition. It's a, it's a perspective about holy things. And it's about, it's about how they view Jesus Christ and how they view the, view the Father and the Spirit. And they are humble and reverent toward them. Reverent, sound in faith. They're sound in love. Now, what's up with that? I mean, doesn't that seem very broad in general? Very, very broad. So, so broad to, as to be... Is, this, is it useful? Well, when you, when you look up the qualifications of the elders in the chapter before, chapter 1 and verse 8, what it says is that I want the, the men who would be elders to be lovers of good. Broad? Yes. Understandable? Yes. I don't think it's ambiguous. I think we all get it. People who've been around the Scriptures understand what good is. We can tell the difference. Just like you tell what sound doctrine is or being sound to the faith. You can get that. You can get it. Lovers of good is, is here. We need old, wiser men, wise men who are sound in the faith, sound in love, sound in patience. Patience doesn't mean that they're willing to wait around a long time. It means something more important. It, it has to do with a steadfastness. It means that they're not going to be swayed by every wind of doctrine. These are solid men. They're, they're patient um, in, their, in their holding to truth and righteousness. They're the anchors of the church. Now, those are my words. It's interesting to me. In the order, I don't know if I'm making too much out of it, but I don't think so. Yet they have the order of these four categories of people, and he starts with the older men. I want you to be sound in the faith. I want you to be sound in patience and love, and I want you to be sober. I want you to be men that other people can look up to. And I thought about when I was writing this sermon, I thought, you know what? I got all these different faces that come to my mind from the West Huntsville Church, and I'm not going to name them. I started to do that. The problem is I know that I, that I, would, I can't name as many as there are without forgetting some, and I don't want to do that, but I want you to do it. I want you to do it now. I want you to run through your mind pictures of men in this church who you know who fit the description of this older, these older men in Titus chapter 2. That, that Paul is writing to Titus about. And you do know men like this. You do know them. You think about the elders of this church. Those are men like this. And aren't you thankful for them? And I tell you something else. We're going to talk about the young men in a few minutes. And one day you're going to be the elders. And one day you're going to be the older men in the church. And one day the church is going to depend on you. And if you're not sound, if you're not strong and faithful, you'll hurt the church more than help it. And so be strong and faithful. Set your sights on these qualities 
of Titus chapter 2 when he says, I want the older men to be this. You've got to start that now. All right, now let's continue. The older women likewise, this is the second category. Likewise means, okay, this is very similar. That they be reverent in behavior. We've talked about reverent before. Um, uh, you, um, this is New King James, reverent. The Old King James says, says grave, which I think is interesting. Philippians 2 and verse 8 uses the same word and, and translates it noble. Noble, grave, reverent. Does that give you a handle on this? Reverent in behavior. The older women in this church in Crete and in West Huntsville are to be reverent in behavior. That is, they know what sacred is. They know what things are sacred. And to them, they are sacred, and they hold them in reverence. They're not slanderers. Is slander and and gossip, is that uh, synonymous? No, they're different. Those are different. The, the definition, the walking down the street definition that I would put to gossip is to gossip is to tell something that I do not own. And usually something that's somewhat salacious, something that is, I don't know, that it's more than, more than just what, what's the weather like. This is something that other people might be interested in hearing. And I don't own the information. I tell it merely for the pleasure of telling it. We need to be careful about that. But you can take that one step down and, and it becomes slander. Now let me tell you something interesting to me is that in the authorized version, the AV, the King James Version of the Bible, you find this word, this Greek word, 38 times. The one that's translated slanderers here, don't be a slanderer. 38 times. 35 of those, it's translated Satan or devil. How does that grab you? I'm telling you, this is serious business. And the reason is that, that the photo, the, the poster child... For slander is Satan himself. And you read the book of Job and you'll get that because remember what he said to God? Yeah, well, he serves you. Job serves you, God, but it's because you blessed him so much. And if you take away all those blessings, well, he'll curse you to your face. Well, it wasn't true. It was just filthy language. It's filthy talk about that. What what word would you put to it? The answer is it's slander. That's what it is. Slander is gossip, but it, but it, it is... It includes some facet of something that is injurious to that person's name, to that person's reputation, and it's slanderous. He says to the women, I want you to stay away from that. Now, why he would warn the women about this, and this is not included to the men, it would be equally wrong for the men, and perhaps it's because there are circumstances where the women would have a greater temptation. You can sort that out yourself. Not given to much wine. Both, both the old men are, and the, the uh, old women are warned about alcohol. Don't you suppose that's because of the culture in which they live? Teachers of good things. Now, hold on just a minute. The next verse is going to shift us to the younger women and, and the things that the older women ought to teach the younger women. Now, what's interesting about that to me is that isn't that what Titus is supposed to be doing? And Why didn't Paul just say, Titus, here's the list, and I want you to teach these things to the young women? Why would he assign this? Titus, you get the old women. You delegate this. Have the old women teach these things to the young women. Why is that? Well, you know, you know, the answer is that Titus isn't the ideal person to do that. I've often thought about the eldership, not just here, but Every eldership, I guess, is made up of different personalities. 
And, and it's very wise. And our eldership often does this. When, when some Christian is in trouble, some struggling, some problem in a life, it's not at all uncommon for our elders to, to handpick which elder or elders will go and see that person and try to help them based on their personality, based on their different personalities. Who is the best one to go and do this job? Well, who's the best one you reckon to go and talk to younger women? You think it's Titus? You think Titus, the man, would be great? Look at the list. We're going to go down the list for younger women, and you think he's the one to do this job? I rather doubt it. Who would be perfect for it? Let me tell you something, ladies. If you, if you struggle because you don't like your husband very much, you ever, you ever been like that? You ever had days you don't like him very much? If you, got, you start struggling in your marriage for one reason or another, who do you reckon is a good person to go talk to? And I would say a woman who is grave and, and noble and who is reverent in the church. You need a wise old woman who's going to say something like this. I used to feel like that when I was 25 years old. My husband and I face something like, like you're going through right now. And then your eyes are going to get big and your ears are going to do this. And you're going to focus on what that lady has to say because I want to know, if I'm you, I want to know how this turned out and what did you do and what advice would you give me about how to handle that, right? There's the point. I want you older women, he says, to be all of these things because I want you to admonish. That word admonish is kind of interesting. Verse 4, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, love their children, etc. The word admonish means... And it's in the young translation, it's something like this. It, it is, I want you to make them think soundly. I want, you to, I want you to make them think soundly. So there's a way to think. There's a right way to think. In this case, based on the experience of the older woman. She knows what is right. She knows what is right. And a bit, the best way to deal with these issues, I want the older women to admonish the young women. And here's the list. To love their husbands and love their children. I don't know if this will be interesting to everybody, but I'm just going to point it out briefly, is that the word love in both of these cases is furnished by the translators. It's, it's, um, the, the love is inherent in the words husband and children. In both cases, those words start out with a derivative of phileo. Both husbands and children start out with phileo. So, Inherent in those words, husband and children, is exactly what this says in the English. I want you to love your husbands and love your children. Love your husbands. Phileo. You know, you understand that phileo love is friendship love. I want you to be your husband's friend. And this is what Paul is saying. And you're talking about a rough old place in Crete. And I want you to teach about family. And one thing is, I want the women, <clears throat> those young women, to love their husbands. Now listen closely to this old preacher. It's not just a, an emotion. That's worldly thought. It's not just an emotion. Hopefully it'll be an emotion, but it's not just that. It's a command. And, and I tell you, the older women are the best ones to explain this to you, right? I think that could be very challenging. And love your children. I'd stop at that one. That one, I just struggle with that. And, and I, but, it, but why, why in the world, why... In, in a good sense, would you say to a, a young woman, I want you to love your children. God, you know, I, I went a while ago to Mariah and, and Sweet Little Day, 
and um, you see how, and other mothers of young children in this room, and you see how they hold those babies, how they love on those babies and protect them, and looks to me like the most natural thing in the world is a mama loving her baby. The most natural thing of all ought to be a given. Why in the world would you need to preach this? Why would you need to stand up at Crete and say, and love your children? Why would that be a part of a sermon? It doesn't make any sense to me, right? Right? I mean, think about John. Think about this. Bring up this next slide. John 16, Jesus is talking about how he's going to die on the cross, and he's going to be gone, and you're going to hurt over that. Then he gives this illustration about a mama. He says, a woman, when she's in travail, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she's delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish. Why? She's just full of joy. Now, see, that's just as easy as falling off a log. That's natural. That's what's natural. I love Psalm 131 and verse 2. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. See, that's natural. But I'm going to tell you this, human beings and cultures like Cretans, like Cretans, can become so dark, a man cuts himself loose from God, and sometimes people do that, and sometimes they're doing it today, and they do it flippantly, and they mock the things of God and the people of God. But I'll tell you this, a man who cuts himself loose from God is going to get dark. Darkness is going to enter into a culture that is predominantly made up of people who don't hold to the true and living God. I can tell you right now that cultures will get very dark. And when I say, why in the world would would you need to command people in a culture to love their children, mamas to love their babies? Why would you have to do that? And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, hold on, Glenn. What about abortion? Man, we're eating up with this in our country. Yes, we are. I think that we've got a, I mean, we've got a presidential election coming up. I think that we pretty much, among the, I don't know, it's probably not true about the candidates, and I'm not talking politically. I just want to make this statement. I think that, that, that most people in politics believe today that you have to make some concession for abortion, for killing unborn babies, or you're not electable. Really. Maybe this is the culture in which we need to be saying, command us to love your babies. But not just that. I just want you to think about how different we are. And sometimes the difference as Christians between us and the world is just terribly dramatic. It's not in man that walks to direct his own path. Jeremiah 10 and 23. It's not. There's a way which seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Sometimes people today are talking about socialism and communism. Karl Marx is credited with being the father of both. And let me show you a quote about, and we just know how dark people can get if, they're cut, if they cut themselves loose from God. If they cut themselves loose from the truth and sound thinking and they, they just separate from that, how does, they, don't, they don't stay the same way. They're not going to stay the, stay the same way. They're going to get dark. That's what will happen. The education, here's what Mark said. Now, bear in mind, he's about communism. He's He's, this is, and listen, you, I, this, I, I'm not talking about communism today or socialism. That's not my point. I'm talking about children right now and mamas loving their babies. The education of all children, he said, from the moment that they can get along without a mother's care. Does that already start to chill you a little bit? Does those words start to chill you? Does me. The moment they can get along without a mother's care shall be in state institutions. Because he thought, The family was an institution to advance capitalism and maintain its needs, and he was opposed to that. You tell me how dark that is. 
I tell you what it makes me want to do. It makes me want to be a Christian. I want to stay in the Word. I want to stay close to Christ. I want to follow the teaching of the Holy Spirit. I want to be a child of God. How about you? Because I don't want to live in the darkness that's like that. I don't want to. Now, Paul's writing, and he says, here's what I want you to teach. The old women, the older women, I mean nothing ugly by that, the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, verse 5, to be discreet and chaste. Now, the word discreet here is the same Greek word as for the men uh, up above that was temperate. A temperance means self-control. Discreet means self-control. But discreet for the ladies here has a little different twist to it or emphasis because it's connected to the word chaste. They're one after the other, and I believe they're connected. To be discreet and chaste is not something that probably needs an explanation in this room, but it means that you teach the younger women, and I knew surely in Crete you got to do this, that, that ladies... Don't, don't dress. Reckon this came from the, the lips of Titus in preaching. Don't dress immodestly. Don't do that. Don't dress in clothing that's revealing. You know what that is. That doesn't have to be explained. Quit doing that. Don't do that. Discretion would be in, to women. It's specifically to be chaste means to be morally pure and pure from carnal things. She's a, she's a respectable woman. She's a Christian woman. And that means that, that what she offers to her husband is offered to no one else. That she has respect for her marriage and respect for her husband. And she will dress modestly. And when she speaks, she will speak with discretion. She's not crude. She's not ugly in demeanor. She's somebody who's a Christian. You teach them that. To be discreet, chaste, Homemakers. Now, this one um, is one that I think, over the last several years particularly, has made a lot of women, a lot is an ambiguous word, a number of women stop and say, I'm not going to do that, Lord. I am not going to do what that says. I will not. I just think that's over the line. It's just too much. So don't take, I don't want you to take my interpretation for this. So let me have the next slide. Here, here is the, um, the Greek definition in its entirety from Strong's lexicon from a Greek dictionary. What did Paul mean when he wrote this? And this is the definition, or, or kuros, a guard, to beware of something, a stayer at home, domestically inclined, a good, quote, housekeeper, keeper at home, caring for the house, working at home, the watcher, keeper of the house, keeping at home and taking care of household affairs, a domestic. Now, I know that that is so cross-culture. I'm just saying that this is organic teaching. That, that's just what it is. It's, it's what is taught here and under the heading of this is sound doctrine. Is it? Is it sound doctrine that her primary role and duty and responsibility is to her home. That's what this says. doesn't say she can't leave the house, but I can tell you this. This is all-encompassing in her life. To be discreet, chaste, I'm in verse 5, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not blaspheme. Let's spend a minute on obedient to their own husbands. Um, I had someone write me recently, a woman, uh, a good sister, 
who, who it was troubled about verses like this one because she said, I know a number of women whose husbands are abusive to them in, in various different ways. And she described them, and I'm not going to explain it here because some of it's just too sensitive to describe. Uh, but, but it was sinful. What, what the husbands in these cases that she described, and I don't know them, and I really don't know who she is, but, but what she described would have been sinful behavior. And she said, but the preachers preach so hard about how that the wives are to be submissive to their husbands. But what if the husbands are abusive in ways such as these? That was the question that she, that she raised. And I thought a lot about that. And there's, there's a couple of answers to it. Um, one would be that if your husband requires of you something which is against Christ, then you should disobey him and obey Jesus. Acts 5 and verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. That would be applicable to the husband. You don't have to obey him in things that are sinful. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. But I want you to get a, a, a grasp, grasp on the bigger picture too. And the bigger picture would be that God delegated authority to different ones uh, in this world. You, Romans 13, so the, so the civil authorities, the, the police, they, they have authority. May I ask you a question? Is it possible? Does it happen sometimes that, that the police or other parts of civil authority would violate that authority or they would exceed their authority or they would contaminate their authority? Does that happen among police? I suppose. I don't think it happens all the time, but I, I suppose it does sometimes. What about elders? God's delegated, Hebrews 13 and verse 15 through 17, God has delegated authority to elders in the church. You suppose that, that an eldership or an elder may, may abuse his authority or their authority? Does that happen? I, I, I don't see it often, but, I, but there's no question in my mind that sometimes it does. And so that leads us, of course, to a logical question about this one. Is it possible in these verses where you have the, the authority system in a, in a family, in a marriage, in a family that sometimes a man's going to abuse his authority, and the answer is yes. But I'll tell you this, God saw you coming, man. He saw that coming. And so what he says is, when you see this, he's going to check that authority and say, well, I mean, you got the next verse in our text in Titus 2 right now. He's going to say, now, younger men, here's what I want you to be. You go to, you go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, and a woman's to obey her husband in everything. And then it says, now, you husbands, obey. I want you to love your wives like Christ loved the church. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto your wife. What's that? Don't you be abusing this authority. Don't you be using the authority in the home as a club to beat her over the head into submission. Don't do that. You've got to have a head, though. You've got to have a head. C.S. Lewis talked about this and said that you get a marriage and, and you've got big decision to make and and, and you disagree about which direction you should go, you, you'll have an impasse and the thing blows up. You've got to have somebody to, who's in authority, primary authority, to say this is what we're going to do. It makes, us, it makes sense. And God's done that in the home. He says, older women, teach the younger women to be obedient to your husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, verse 6, here's the last one. Exhort the young men to be sober-minded, See things as they really are. In all things, showing yourself. Now, gentlemen, he doesn't put an age on here. I assume that it would start with, with these uh, teenage men over here. 
and it would certainly include young husbands, and we got a bunch of them in this room right now. Young husbands, I want you to be like this. Young men, I want you to be like this. This is what Paul's teaching. You be sober-minded. Sober-minded means seeing things as they really are. In all things, showing this is who you, this is defining in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. You're not lazy, not in your occupation. What you do in your job, you do as unto the Lord. You're not lazy in your service to the, to the Lord. What we practice if this, in this worship assembly, if we're doing something for the, whatever we're doing for the Lord, we want to practice excellence. That would be involved in this, a pattern of good works. In doctrine, this is your teaching. What you hold to is right. It's, for you, you know, it's, it's, you know the truth. It's the Scripture. Showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. I'm not being swept about with every, every wind of doctrine. I love the Bible. I study the Bible. I compare what I hear from the pulpit to the Scriptures. Is this true or is this not true? And what the Bible says is where we're going to stand. That's what we're going to do. And it's incorruptible. That is to say, I won't give you the right to corrupt my faith. I will give that to no one. I'm going to be very selfish about that because I want to go to heaven. And I want to take as many people with me as I can. Now, verse 8 is very interesting, and it winds up the sermon. Sound speech. This is characteristic of all these. Listen, young husband, is this you? What is sound speech? Well, it would obviously mean that you don't use garbage talk, and you don't take God's name in vain, and you don't curse people or things. It would mean all of that, but it would mean more than that. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. This is very broad. Everything, you, everything that comes out of your mouth, that he who is of the opposition may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. I love that. That is to say that, that you're already bringing, uh, building your name. You're building your reputation of what people know about you. The beauty of it is that, that the longer you live and the more you live like that, the more solidified this view that people have of you will be. And part of it's your sound speech. Part of it's the way you talk. And, and there may come a time when somebody would be critical of you. Somebody would spread some rumor about you. And if somebody spreads a rumor about me, I hope the person, this is what I want. I, I hope it will be like this, that the person listening will say, you know what, I know Glenn, I don't believe that. I just don't believe he would ever say that. I don't believe he would ever do that. Now, I'm going to talk to him, but I, don't, I just don't believe it because I know him. See, that's how it needs to be with all of us. Young men, how's your integrity doing? How about in your marriage? How's your integrity doing? How about in your morals? How's your integrity doing? Look at what's required of you in this preaching from Paul and Titus. How's your integrity? Sound speech. A pattern of good works. Integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. You might say, he's saying to these young husbands and fathers and teenage men. You be faithful Christians. That's what Paul told Titus to preach in a place called Crete, in a town or an area where Paul says one of them, this is chapter 1 verse 12, a prophet of their own said, Cretans Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says, this testimony is true. That's what they are. Now, Now, Titus, you go preach to those people. What do you preach? You preach about, among other things, you preach about family. And here are the roots. This is the organic teaching. 
I'm so glad you're here today. And I'm so glad that the Scripture gives us instruction, not in broad, not merely in broad, ambiguous terms, but in specific, so that we can know what He really wants of us. And also, you can test your faith by it. Faith is saying, I know God's right. I know He's right. I'm going to do things His way. So somebody here today is not a Christian. Wouldn't it, be a, wouldn't it be a wonderful time to obey the gospel? Would you like to follow the path that God has laid out for us? I mean, he illuminated our path to show us how to go to heaven. That's what the scripture is for. You could be a Christian. Repent of your sins and confess Jesus and we'll baptize you. We'll immerse you in water simply because that's what the Bible says to do, to have forgiveness of sins. And he'll add you to the church, the church that Paul preached for, the church that Titus preached for the church that you're involved in an assembly today, the church of our Lord. If you need to be restored today or for another reason you need the prayers of Christians, now would be such a good time. And we care about you and we'll be happy to pray for you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.